Momentum is a funny thing. Is it not? Have you experienced momentum before? It's a, it's a funny thing. It's a real thing. Um, funny, I didn't mention this in first service. I remember the moment when momentum set in here at Grace after I was hired as the lead pastor. Whenever you're taking over a church, especially one that's been there for a very long time, there are many things to do, many things to change, and uh, the jury's always kind of out on whether or not the changes are going to work. And so you live in fear until you feel momentum kick in. And it was Easter of my second year here, so Easter of 2017, that I remember going, all right, I could literally feel the momentum kick in, and I knew in that moment we were going to be fine, and lo and behold, we have been fine. This church has not stopped growing since then. Uh, just this morning in first service, I met another new family who've been here for three weeks and told me today, this is our church, and that's been happening over and over again over the last three years. It's something I'm profoundly thankful for, but that is the fruit of momentum, okay? It is real. It doesn't just exist in church. You've experienced this in your own business, You've experienced this in your own work. You've experienced this in your relationships. Momentum is a real thing. Let me define the term for us. Momentum, a property of a moving body that the body has by virtue of its mass and motion, and that is equal to the product of that body's mass and velocity. Momentum, a property of a moving body that determines the length of time required to bring it to rest when, one, when under the action of a constant force. Momentum, this is the one that is most applicable to us, strength or force gained by motion or a series of events. I would define momentum this way, uh, that thing that makes you win or lose football games. Right? I played football through high school, I played in university, and I have coached it for the last 10 years. And if you've spent any time around that sport in particular, you will know that momentum is a very real thing. Even for all you hockey people, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but it is a day that will live in infamy. Remember when the Leafs were in Game 7 against the Boston Bruins? And you could feel the moment that the momentum turned in that game. And what I find really scary about momentum is that I could feel it through the television. Right? I wasn't there. Momentum is so real that you can feel it even at a distance. It is a real thing. That thing that makes you win or lose football games or that thing that makes you win or lose at life. Have you felt it? When you have a bad day, something bad happens and it tends to cascade into more bad things. I often like stop. As soon as I have that one bad thing that I know can turn into a cascade of unfortunate events, I literally stop and I reset. I change what I'm doing in order to reset the momentum of the day. That's how real momentum is in my own life, and I'm convinced that the same is true for you. It's a real thing. You want momentum on your side. Right? You don't want to be on the wrong side of it. You want momentum on your side. And when you're dealing with dark days, you uh, want the tide to turn. You ever experienced that? Maybe you're there right now. You're in a dark night of the soul, and you're just watching for that moment when the tide will begin to turn. A couple things I know about the tide turning. One, when it begins to happen, it is unmistakable. All right, so when the tide begins to turn, you will see it. So keep your eyes peeled. It will happen, okay? It is unmistakable. The second thing I know about tides turning, they don't turn very fast. You ever experienced this, especially in your own life? You're in a dark season that lasts for a while, and you're like, come on, Lord, we need the tide to turn. And the Lord may be saying to you, yes, the tide is turning, but have you noticed that the tides in the real world, 
They turn slowly. This is an image, perhaps, of how God works in our lives. I know that sometimes you get breakthrough, and we all love those moments of breakthrough, but are you anything like me? How many times in your life have you had a moment of breakthrough versus how many times in your life have you had to wait for an interminable dark night of the soul for the tides to turn? Can I get amen in this house? Right? It's usually the latter, not the former. So I just want you to not feel depressed and not feel like you're the only person who's dealing with a dark night of the soul. You know what I would do if I was you in your dark night of the soul? I would sit down on the beach. Right? Sit down on the figurative beach in your mind and watch the darn ocean. And worship the God who made the ocean. And just be on spiritual pins and needles waiting for the tide to turn. Be like a kid on Christmas Eve. Waiting for Christmas morning to come. Okay? Resurrection is coming. He got up on Easter Sunday morning. The tide will... Ooh, somebody say amen, right? The tide will turn in your life. So today in Ezra 6, we'll find some things to watch for and to cultivate and to work with when the momentum is swinging and the tide is turning. And we'll find all these things, believe it or not, in Ezra chapter 6. I keep having people tell me, I have never read Ezra. I have never studied it. I can't believe the stuff that we're finding in this together. Here's Ezra chapter 6. And think about that tide in your life as you hear these words. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore... Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam, (laughs) this is so ancient Near Eastern, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. It's like, oh no, don't mess with the law. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I thought of the Romans there. I thought maybe they were prophesying, right? Bad things are going to happen if you destroy this house. The Romans destroyed it in AD 70. And where is Rome today? The empire of Rome is no more. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, look what they do. Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethagbozanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. No kidding. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido, 
They finished the building by decree of the God of Israel, so they give credit to God first, and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third, the house was finished, church. This house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember that point right there. It's a big one. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Do you like the fact that I read you the whole chapter? I hope so, right? Because it's kind of weird. Like, it's weird that uh, you would have an entire chapter of Scripture read week in and week out, but uh, this is a church after all, and I figure you'd rather hear the word than my jokes. (laughs) Amen, exactly. I was waiting for that. Okay, so here's what we're looking for. Some things to watch for, cultivate, and work with when the momentum is swinging and the tide starts turning. All of Ezra chapter 6. So, if you're looking for a momentum swing, remember, point number one, that records are being kept. This is why verses 1 and 2 are so beautiful. Okay, a record is searched for and a record is found. Records are being kept. The story of God and his people is full of records. In fact, you would say that this document, this Bible as we have it, is really a book of records. It tells us the story of God and his people. It records genealogies, births and deaths. It records the rising and falling of kings. It records the falling and ministry of prophets. It recalls the stories of everyday ordinary people caught up in the big symphony of God and his kingdom unfolding. Okay, This is a book of... Of records. I wanted to point something out for you pastorally because I care about you a lot. A lot of times throughout Christian history, Christians have made the mistake of pointing to this book of records. Okay, first and foremost, we point to this book of records. We say, well, the Bible says, or it's in the Bible. And the problem with pointing out what's in this book of records to people who are not yet Bible people is that pointing out the book of records to a people who are not yet part of the people of that book is like, throwing pearls before swine. It's like singing to somebody who can't hear. It's like offering food to somebody who doesn't eat. I want to just remind you that in addition to this book being a book of records, your life is a book of records. Okay, Your life displays the evidence of the work of God. And the problem often comes up when we point someone to the book of records, but the record that is our life is anything but exemplary. This is when Christianity falls on deaf ears because you're pointing them to a book of records that they have no affinity for. Meanwhile, the record that they clearly see being written in your own life is less than glorious because they work with you. They play hockey with you. They see you in your day-to-day life. This is, of course, very real in our immediate family circle. So I want you to just keep in mind pastorally that your life is also a book of records. Let's uh, become a people who can point to themselves as evidence of the goodness of God. Wouldn't that be good? 
To be able to say, God, not to say, look at me, but to say, look how good God has been to me. See all the ways in which God is teaching me to learn to love him and to learn to love people as he endures with me in his patience and in his mercy. People, oh, let me tell you an example. I'm a little embarrassed, but it's a good example. Did I tell you the story about me helping that little boy push the car to the gas station? No, okay. So I'm driving up Stone Road the other day, coming home from a meeting, and there's a little boy behind a Prius pushing the Prius down Stone Road. I was like, what? I literally said, what the? And I, I sped around him and parked in the, at the Petro Canada on Stone Road. Didn't even like turn my car off. Like just parked and like pulled up the emergency brake and ran. And I'm running down the sidewalk into the traffic. And I jump behind the car with this little boy. He's like 11. And he's pushing his single mom in the car. And I was like, nobody stopped for him. I didn't say that. But that's what I'm saying. So I, 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 I start pushing the car with this little dude. And I look at him. I say, you are a champion. I say, you're, how, how are you so strong? He's like, I'm a football player. I'm like, I'm a football coach. Come play for me at Centennial someday. Push harder. Cars whizzing by us. Woom, woom, pushing this car. And we get to the place we got to turn uphill into Petrocan. I'm like, here we go now. Let's push a little harder. It's going to be uphill for a second. We push it up. We push it into the thing. We park it. I got the Holy Ghost. I give him a high five. The mom gets out of the car. I say, buy this kid a cheeseburger. And then I run away. <laughs> but you know what? As I drove away, I thought, I hope somebody saw that, who someday I will meet. And they'll be like, oh, you're that pastor from, oh, you're that pastor from, dang. Okay, that's one little example of how your life can be an example that resonates with people in the in-between time as they taste and see that the Lord is good and come to love the book of records that reveals to us the God who is keeping score. Okay, because God is keeping score, you do not have to lose hope. Why? He is not asleep at the wheel. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? He's not asleep at the wheel. He knows what's going on. He is and will account for the things that are going on in your life according to His justice and His mercy. Depending on the season we're in, depending on our political leanings, we like to emphasize God's justice a little more than His mercy, or some of us like to emphasize His mercy a little more than His justice. It behooves us to remember that He is a God of mercy and justice both. Okay? He will deal with the ills of the world according to His justice. Okay, why is hell real? Because God will not allow an unrepentant evildoer to ruin eternity for everyone else. And so he will banish that unrepentant evildoer from his presence so that the fields of the Lord will be filled with joy for all their days. But if that unrepentant sinner should bow the knee in the presence of the Lord and say, Yes, Lord, not my will but yours be done. If they should bow the knee to the King of Heaven, then he will deal with them according to his mercy. He is a God of justice and mercy both. And you can count on the fact that that is how he is dealing with everything that ails you in your life. So don't lose hope, friends. God is keeping score. Also, um, stop worrying so much and focus on just being who you are meant to be. Who are you meant to be? Point number two, you are meant to be a home builder. We see this in verse three. Let the house of God be rebuilt. Let me say to you this morning that God is all about building home. We saw this in the Eden narrative. 
Okay, he made Eden not to be a garden, not because he's a horticulturalist. He made it to be a home for Adam and Eve. God is all about building home. This is what he was up to when he cleansed the earth for Noah and his family to make them a beautiful home. This is what he was up to when he sent Abraham away from the house of his father to the land that would one day be home to him and to his descendants forever. He's always about building home. The Jews returned home from exile and slavery in Egypt as recorded in the book of Exodus. They secured and built their home during the years of the judges, the prophets, and the kings. They were then exiled from that home due to persistent disobedience and into that Babylonian exile they went. And from that Babylonian exile, they returned home as recorded in Ezra chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is building your home right now. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, 2. Jesus is a builder. And if you are a Christian, that means you are a little Christ. So if you are a little Christ, you ought to do what Christ does. And Jesus is a renovator. Be like Jesus. Do what Jesus does. Your job is to make this place feel like home while you wait for him to return and take you there. Okay, that's your life mission. You may have a calling, a job, a career, all these things that you do, these are all tools to help you execute your life mission, which is to turn this place into home while you wait for Jesus to come and take you there. If you want to invite momentum into your life, do your job, be a renovator. And point number three, live with complete confidence because you are headed for complete restoration. Let me read to you verse five where we see it promised. And also... Let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Have I not mentioned the dishes almost every week? Have I not? I have. Why? Because the dishes show up every week so far. When we come to a chapter where the dishes don't show up, I won't say boo about the dishes. But so long as the dishes keep showing up, I will keep saying, if God cared enough to restore even his dishes to their proper place, and if that complete restoration is an echo of what we see in Ezra chapter 2, when God sent his people home to their proper place. Did you remember that from Ezra 2? They actually inherited the cities that they came from. Imagine what that would have been like going home. Talk about a homecoming. So if God cares about the details of that restoration as recorded in Ezra chapter 6 that much, I am pretty sure that he is going to effect complete restoration for you, my friend. And you can bet your life on it. Okay, you can bet your life on it. In fact, as you walk with Jesus, you can expect your life to get better and better. You're like, really? Yes, really. Even in the valley of the shadow of death? Yes. Why? Because we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? He didn't bring you to that valley to leave you there. He brought you to that valley to take you through it. Why? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that as you walk through it with Jesus, you will find that every step is better than the one before. Can you witness to this? Okay, your life may still be difficult, but the next step is better than the one previous. Am I right or am I right? The next step may not be an easy step yet, 
but it's a little easier than the step before. The key is to keep walking, or in the immortal words of Walt Disney, keep moving forward. Your life's going to get better and better. Why? How do I know this? Because, point number four, God will fight your battles. Point number five, the land of your suffering will become the source of your provision. Point number six, everything is turning on its head and you're going to have everything you need. These three points, four, five, and six, are contained in verses six through nine. What does he say in these verses? He says to the enemies of God's people, leave them alone. Let them rebuild. In fact, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to cover the cost from your own resources. Did you notice the beauty in the text the first time you read it? It says, we're going to pay for it. Wait a minute, I have a better idea. I'm going to make the province who's been complaining about you pay for it from their tax revenues. Oh, wait, I have another idea. I'm going to make them give you everything you need, not in one one-time payment, but day by day. All the bulls, all the rams, all the heifers, all the goats, all the wheat, all the oil, all the salt, everything you need to fulfill your spiritual practice, I'm going to make them give it to you. You want to know how to cultivate momentum in your life? Point number four, remember that God fights your battles. He is the one who says to your enemies, leave them alone. I had to deal this with Zoe, my little daughter, this week. She had a hard time sleeping. She was dealing with some night terrors. I said, Daddy, what's going on there? I wake up, I'm really scared. I feel like there's an evil presence in my room. I said, that could be. Sometimes it's a nightmare, sometimes it's a demon. If it is, don't worry. You have Jesus in you, and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so all you got to do is call on the name of Jesus, and that darkness will be gone. And I have experienced this in my own life, time and time and time again. Okay, I had to help her understand that God, and I said to her, you know what, honey, most of the time, demons don't really bother Christians that much because they have the Holy Spirit living in them. And I don't know about you, but I would not go anywhere near somebody with a huge attack dog right on their hip. Right? That's what the Holy Spirit is to the powers of darkness. It's this very scary attack dog. They're most of the time going to leave you alone. Okay? God will fight. So, if you're dealing with a battle, let God fight that battle. That's how you cultivate momentum. Point number five. How do you know that the tide is turning? This is beautiful. I love this point. I hope you love it too. You know the tide is turning when the places of your pain become areas of provision. Okay, that's an Alabama church point right there. You will know the tide is turning when the places of your pain start to turn into places of provision, like the wisdom that you learn through that time of suffering. Nobody likes suffering, but almost anybody who has suffered and persevered can look back on that time of suffering and say, the wisdom that I enjoy today that is transforming my life in this moment has been bought with the suffering that I endured 10 years ago. Could I get an amen in this house? Was that you? That's me. That's you. That is the human story. You're like, why does God let us suffer? Because it teaches us things. Why do we suffer? Because we live in a world that is sold in slavery to sin. All those who do not love and respond to Jesus are sold as slaves to sin. And so they are building a world that is bearing the consequences of sin. That is why we suffer. And in our suffering, Jesus ministers to us and leads us through that dark valley. Point number six, why are you part of a better story? Why would I say that everything is turning on its head? Because that's exactly what happened in this story. When God made the enemies of God's people become the providers of God's people, not just with a one-time gift to finish the temple, but with everything they needed to make their daily sacrifices. This is the ultimate punch in evil's eye from our loving God. And the same, my friend, will be true of you because you have been given everything you need to please the Lord. Did you notice verse 10? 
that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. You know what pleasing sacrifices is in the Hebrew? It's so great. I hope this changes your week. Pleasing sacrifices are, don't miss it, restful fragrances. Pleasing sacrifices are restful fragrances. You know what smells best to the Father? Jesus. Jesus smells best to the Father. He is the once and final sacrifice for sin. When he went to the cross, God the Son made flesh, Jesus Christ the righteous, as he hung on the cross, he was not just being punished by the Romans. He was being punished by the Father for your sin and mine. Okay, the Bible tells us that the sins of the world were laid on him in that moment. And if it was true, then that is the most cataclysmic, like, hinge of history moment ever. I want you to picture your Jesus hanging on that cross. And I want you to imagine, with all the synapses in your brain, the weight of the sin of the world throughout all time being laid on him. It's no wonder that it's in Matthew's account that the sky turned dark and stayed dark for hours. Because the sins of the world were being laid on the sinless, spotless lamb. And he suffered and died in your place for your sin. He dies the death that we all should die because the wages of sin is death. But because he's God the Son made flesh, he does not stay dead. But he arises again the third day, that very first Easter Sunday morning. The king of glory gets back up and he triumphs in his body over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And that victory is your victory as you respond to Jesus by faith. Jesus is the once and final and perfect sacrifice for sin, which is why, off the top of today's service, I read to you from the book of Hebrews, but I knew that half of the room wouldn't be here for the top of the service, so I'm going to take you there again to a different passage in the same book. This is Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. But when, hear these words, let them resonate in your soul. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, which is what it did in the Jewish scriptures, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is the best sacrifice. He is the fragrance the Father likes to smell. You want momentum on your side? Remember in the immortal words of Bad Boys 2, Jesus is the way, my brothers. He's what you need. He's what you need. Meditate on him. Dwell on him as you wait for the tide to turn. And also, like his restful fragrance, maybe we should relax a little bit, right? Aren't Christians often rightly accused of being super wound up and uptight? A bunch of self-righteous do-gooders. Let's not be those people. Okay, let's relax a little bit, right? If even Jesus' righteousness is a restful fragrance, let's take that as our cue to relax. That was point number seven. And point number eight, if, look, even a heathen king could ask God for help in verse 10, maybe so should we. Am I right? Like, maybe we could ask for help once in a while. Um, and point number nine, we should start living like the tide has turned. Because it has. Right? In Jesus, the tide, I'm having more fun this service than first service, Andy. He's smiling at me. First service was tough for me. This one's going a little better. The tide has turned. Momentum is on your side. And 
like the good prosperity preacher I'm not. Prosperity is your destiny. How do I know that prosperity is your destiny? Because I read verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying, the foretelling of the word of God, of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. Listen what happened. They finished. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Friends, they finished the work. Okay, the tide has turned. Momentum has swung. I have read nowhere in the Bible that your future hope is less bright than this present darkness. Nowhere have I read that. In fact, your future hope is so bright, it doesn't even need the light of the sun or the light of the moon to shine. Why? For the Lamb is its light. Revelation 21, 23. How good is it? You end up in a city with no hydrophies. <laughs> and somebody said, Amen. Amen, Lord. It's just a symbol for the fact that it's cost-free living. Why? Because Jesus paid the price. And his victory is so bright that the sun and the moon could go into retirement if they wanted to, but he probably keeps them there because they're beautiful. So, point number 10, give God glory like his people did in verse 14, part B. And number 11, live like all the promises are coming true because if, look, even the earthly house got rebuilt as recorded in verse 15, I'm pretty sure he's good with the heavenly one. Okay, this is why the restoration of the second temple matters to you as God's people because if he came through before, he will come through again. He is the God who does not fail, and he will not fail as concerns you. So point number 12, as a certain preacher likes to say, celebrate, celebrate. Why? Because God keeping his promises should rightly make the people of God celebrate with joy, like it says explicitly in verse 16. So let's get a little more joy in our lives. Let's get a little more happy all the time. Why? Because Jesus has won the victory and he will never lose. So you will never lose. Though for now you may walk through various sorrows, you know that Emmanuel, God is with you and the day will come when you awaken in his likeness and you will see for yourself how that suffering conformed you to the image and likeness of Christ, which is fancy theological words for all that pain you deal with makes you like Jesus because he dealt with a lot of pain on the cross to restore you to right relationship with his father. So know that things are going to be okay. So let's be happy about it. And we're happy not ultimately because some building got rebuilt, but because sin offerings like verse 17 are obsolete now. Okay? Sin offerings are up. Isn't that? That's the first thing I noticed. I noticed that on my first pass when I read verse 17 on Tuesday afternoon. I was like, they offered a bunch of sin offerings. We don't need to do that anymore. Woo! Why? Because Jesus was the once and final sacrifice for sin. Your sin has been dealt with at the cross. Okay? Your sin has been dealt with at the cross, which is why, point number 14, this is my favorite point in the whole sermon. Because of what Jesus did at the cross, you do not have to act like a Jewish priest. You do not have to clean yourself up before you offer the sacrifice. In the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross, you have been cleaned up. You're already clean because of what Jesus did on your behalf. So... That's why we live clean, because we've been made clean. Not to make ourselves clean, we live clean because we are clean. Why would I live dirty now that I have been made clean? Shall we continue sinning that grace may abound? Hell no, Paul says, meganota in the Greek. 
Literally, that's what he says. So we live clean because Jesus has made us clean. And this is my second most favorite point in the sermon. Because of that, we let our set-apartedness be our act of worship. I completely lost track of time, but I am almost done. This is the most important point. This could be the most important thing I've said in three years. Okay? Because we have been made clean in Christ, we let our set-apartedness be our worship. Did you notice This is what happens. Even the people of the land who forsook their idolatrous race to worship the God of Israel were welcomed into the congregation of God's people. And so it is worship, right worship, that sets us apart. Note, we don't set ourselves apart as holy. Okay, We are not the holy huddle. We do not invite people to come and join our holy huddle when they're good and clean. We are not those people. We worship the God who is holy. Holy, and that is what sets us apart in a world that worships self. Do you see the distinction? It's a very important one. We don't set ourselves apart as holy. Look how good and perfect we are. No, we, as clean people, because of what Jesus has done, worship the God who is holy. And that ongoing act of worship is what sets us apart in a world that is busily worshiping itself. And we keep his commands. Oh, worship team, you need to join me because I'm done. Come and let's worship the Lord together in just a moment. We keep his commands. And these are not commands for us to keep specific feasts at specific times. Did you notice that they kept the Passover? But what? We don't have to keep the Passover. Why? Because we are not commanded to keep certain feasts at certain times of serving certain rituals. We are commanded to do two things and to do those two things well. We are commanded to love God and we are commanded to love neighbor like we love ourselves, as recorded in Matthew 22, 40. And like our friends from the Old Testament in point number 16, we love God and love people with joy. Because point number 17, like he did with the Jewish Babylonian exiles of Ezra 6 when he caused the king of Assyria to aid them in their work in verse 22. Friends. He will give you everything you need. Why? Because in Jesus, the tide is turning and momentum is on your side.